and welcome to the ACFP podcast, DO.FM. I'm Katya, a third-year medical student from the Student Public Relations Committee, one of four student committees available for the osteopathic students with a passion for family medicine to serve on through the Student Association of ACFP. So on this month's episode, we'll be talking to student Dr. Sean Poole, And Sean hails mainly from California and Arizona and many moves in between there, uh, which we won't talk about as much, but um, he's even spent two years in Paraguay. Not sure if I'm saying that right. I always pronounce it wrong. Um, To serve in Peace Corps where he met his wife and they have a little 12 month old son at home. Sean ended up in Nevada to attend Toro University for medical school. Um, He just finished his interviews for the cycle last month and is having hopes to practice family medicine with OMM. So Sean, I just wanted to start um, this episode just asking how um, your experience has been being a fourth year applying in family medicine, how your interview season went, and do you have a good idea about where you'd like to end up? Uh, Well, first, uh, thanks, Katya, for having me on the podcast. Uh, I've never done one before. It's really exciting. And uh, that was an awesome introduction, I will <laughs> say. <laughs> but in general, I think what what uh, you'll find out about me is just I'm very grateful to be in a position to soon become a, a family physician in the first place. And I've always taken that mentality with me through through medical school. Uh, I'm one of those people who feels like uh, maybe I shouldn't have been here for many reasons. I'm I'm just very excited to be in this privileged kind of position. So uh, being a fourth year applying to family medicine, uh, it's towards the end of the road. And it's it's been a really long one, but we're, there's like one month left before we match. When I say we, my wife and I, uh, yes. before I match. <laughs> and uh, I'm ecstatic. I'm really excited to start the next journey. Uh, Interviews uh, have went well. Uh, The interview trail has been an exhausting one, but I got to get a little taste from a lot of programs around the country and we put a lot of effort into figuring out where we'd like to go. And uh, do I have an idea of where we would like to end up? We, now that we have a one-year-old son, we've had a rough year as far as being new parents and me being in med school, and we are prioritizing being closer to family. Uh, So I guess I'll leave it at that. Like I have family on the West Coast and in the Midwest uh, and a little bit on the East Coast, everywhere. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So we we have a few programs around the United States that we're looking at. That's that's a little broad, but. (laughs) Yeah. No, I like, I really like the gratitude and um, I definitely have seen that you've been everywhere. I mean, we met in Orlando um, and you've been like all over the place since we've been in touch and like with your wife and your baby, like them coming with you. Um, and I'll say that I met a lot of medical students and you definitely deserve to be where you are. And it's not just privilege. It's like a lot of hard work and like a personality of gold on your part. So congratulations. Thank you. And um, so what kind of practice do you see yourself having as a family doctor? 
Uh, I will be a DO physician. And one reason I went to DO school is because I wanted to practice OMM. Uh, I've taken lots of opportunities to pursue OMM training throughout medical school and on my additions as well. Uh, I was the OMM club president. I went to convocation a few years in a row and uh, always loved practicing it. So um, in the future, I would like to maybe have a clinic for a few days a week and then eventually have OMM kind of OMM clinic one or two days a week. Uh, some of my mentors told me you, you learn how to be a good primary care physician first. And then as the years go by, you start building your OMM clientele. And then maybe later down in your career, you incorporate more OMM into your practice. So that's kind of, uh, you know, how I picture it in the future. I'm, I've told all my, I've told all my, uh, during my interviews, I've told all my interviewees, the program directors that I plan on doing a plus one. And they have all, which means kind of a, a plus one in neuromuscular medicine, osteopathic manipulative medicine. So you can get board certified. That's helpful. Um, yeah. So NMM, OMM. And so I, I plan to get board certified in that so that I can uh, be referred patients, but also, you know, do OMM, do OMM as much as I want. I love that plan. I think anything I've learned, um, I'm a third year and right now I'm training, uh, as you know, because you interviewed there and did a sub-I there, but at a program that is only DOs. Um, and I've just seen kind of firsthand how grateful patients are to have that as an option and how much people can kind of love that um, in their doctor, especially when they have refractory pain issues. Um, it can be one of the only things that works well for them. So I, I love that. And um, how has it been being a husband and a father and a med That's student, true. just since um, it's kind of amazing to me that you balance all that? Oh, well, uh, I'm very happy to have a child and to be married while in med school. Uh, everyone's kind of journey is a little different. And that's just what I was blessed with. I mean, uh, time management really had to, I really had to work on that. Uh, I remember I was studying for my level two and my son was like two months old and it was hard trying to study and be up at night with, with, with the child. But, um, you know, this is something I've always prioritized. They came with me on all my auditions because we prioritize family. And so, I would have interviews and put that right out in front. You know, I have a family, I have a child and, you know, we are in family medicine. So they, it was nice to see that nearly everyone was very accepting of that. Uh, but it's just, I don't know if you plan on having kids one day, but <laughs> it's, it's a joy. So uh, they, they keep me motivated. Yeah. Thanks for asking. Yeah. They're both lucky to have you. I, you know, I've met people that, have a family and juggle that but I feel like you're even more family oriented and like bringing them with you on all your interviews to make sure they fit in and they're happy there I think that's incredible I really yeah, we, respect that thank you we, we try to make a foundation of that you know family because my wife does play a role and and that's what I want she play a role in where we go and where we live and uh, it's not just about me 
and that's always worked out well for us yeah yeah that is awesome and I hope I can be as selfless as you with that oh, <laughs> sharing <laughs> you know sharing my plans and career with my partner and I I don't know it takes a lot of compromise um so I wanted to get into kind of the meat of this conversation um so go ahead and tell the audience about your background um and by that I kind of mean like you uh your race, ethnicity, and language background um, that kind of lends you in a unique kind of perspective um, going through medical school. And like, what has your experience been as a medical student of color during didactic years and clinical rotation since those are so different from each other? Yeah, that that is very big meat and potatoes in one question. Uh, yeah. <laughs> but. I will, I like how you put it, like the lens, what's the lens I bring to medical school and, and my perspective of the medical field. Uh, I'll try to wrap it up so it's not too, too long, but I'll say in two, 2018, when this big recession, or I'll say, okay, I, I am half African-American and half Filipino. I was born in the Bay Area of California. Uh, so Silicon Valley, that's a big melting pot. Um, but my, my father was like in the Navy and he went to the Philippines, met my mother. So my, my mom's a first generation immigrant uh, and they separated when I was born. So I was raised by a single mom and, um, fast forward to when I'm 18, uh, my mom is remarried and 2008 hits, you know, the recession and, uh, we ended up losing our home to foreclosure and, uh, kind of what brought me to medicine was this year in which we went from having a nice home uh, in Flagstaff, Arizona, to uh, kind of being homeless and with a family of five on like a salary of $40,000. And my stepdad worked as an electrical engineer and we kind of had to live in the side of this building where he worked. And so it was kind of a rough year for him. Uh, everyone in my family started getting sick and I didn't know why, but I knew that mental health, uh, diet and kind of sicknesses that we were getting, they were all interconnected. That's, that's what I thought before I even knew what, what DO school was. And so, uh, I knew I wanted to do medicine from that point. My mom was getting pre-diabetic. We were getting like lung issues, breathing in all this metallic dust from his work, uh, depression and things like that. So I went to school and uh, took me took me a while to get into school, um, did the Peace Corps, and then bam, I present to Torrey University. Uh, that's some of the background there. So having that perspective uh, as a black male who's, who's experienced some adversity, uh, it helped me, I guess, uh, empathize with a lot of the patient base that comes into these FHQCs uh, underserved uh, without uh, you know, insurance and things like that, not having food security. Uh, instead of asking what house they live in, I would ask questions like, where do you sleep at night? Do you feel safe? And patients really, uh, 
you know, felt connected to how I spoke to them. I would look around my class, you know, two black people in a class of 180. And uh, I also am fluent in Spanish. So that that's another, you know, 10 out of 180 who speak Spanish. And I, re I started realizing I had something to offer here in, in these clinics and hospitals I was serving in. Um, patient uh, on multiple occasions, either black patients or Hispanic, uh, Spanish speaking patients, they would, they would see me and they would get emotional and be like, wow, you look like my son, or I'm so proud of you. And you represent more than yourself. And that was confusing at first. And now that I'm a fourth year, I'm about to graduate. I, I know a little bit more of what that means. Um, that they, they kind of have a pride in them when they see me. And as I'm going through medical school, I go from being a little bit curious as to why I'm having interactions like this. Like I would walk down a hallway and see a black security guard and they would start crying. And I'm like, what's going on? And now towards the end of my fourth year, that leads me to wanting to advocate and reach out into the community to, to show face or to like, to advocate for the next generation and to let, let uh, little brown kids know that there are people who look like them who are our doctors. I remember volunteering at uh, this school in North Vegas and I was just there for an hour to talk about what it's like being a, a, a colored medical student. And then I, I like logged onto the Zoom call and they all looked like me and all their jaws dropped. They're like, are you the person that's supposed to come talk to us? I was like, yeah, what's up? And then they were like, they're like, I didn't, I didn't think that you, they literally said that to me. Like, I didn't think you could look like us. And I remember thinking that when I was younger too, that maybe this field wasn't for people like me. So kind of comes full circle, you know? Um, I say I'm privileged to be here and I'm excited to, to look at younger kids and to let them know they could be here too. So that's kind of the story wrapped in a little bow. Um, that's a story I've kind of woven together going through my interview season. <laughs> um, but yeah. Yeah, I think that was a, a really succinct way to kind of wrap up your whole life, but you're definitely a huge role model and anyone can kind of see that by looking at you and talking to you and like listening to the things you've overcome I mean all of the social determinants of health and you kind of went through those firsthand um you know it's amazing that you're able to bring that perspective to the table and uh be able to show people um you know, what you can do with that and how you can benefit patients. I think, uh, you know, I'm white and we don't often think about as the majority, you know, how our patients, what, what we don't bring to the table for our patients or how it's perceived when everyone they see that comes in the room is white or how that might influence, you know, minority patients, minority future doctor hopefuls and the work. So I think it's really important 
um, that you're here and there should be more of you here um, to kind of have these conversations and be a role model. So thank you for, you know, overcoming all that. And, you know, you're making me feel my privilege. Oh boy, that's not the point of this, Katia. You know, no. uh, I don't I don't come here pretending to be a champion of like how to speak about race and things like that. Uh, was just coming here sharing my my personal story and, and realizing uh i guess how i'm viewed in the medical system by patients and you know what i bring to the table so uh <laughs> but yeah not towards the broader that's a really deep topic uh, but <laughs> yes. thanks for thanks for uh, your comments yeah yeah you're awesome sean and you have this other superpower so in Paraguay, when you were in Peace Corps, you learned Spanish. Um, and so how do you think your Spanish fluency has helped the patients that you've worked with kind of on the same vein that we were just talking about? What have you noticed about interactions with staff and minority patients? You know what, sadly, you say superpower, <laughs> I guess, <laughs> sadly, it almost seems like in the medical field it's a superpower because in common life it's not you know hundreds of millions of people speak this language but it's not as easy in the when you're walking down wards to find someone who's a spanish speaker uh i i mentioned my my father you know lost his job and we moved to i think i don't know if i mentioned it but we moved to san diego where he got his new job i was 19 at the time so that's when I started learning Spanish. Um, I saw the the influx, the culture shift, you know, in San Diego, um, the Latino culture. And I thought, if I don't learn Spanish, I'm going to regret it for the rest of my life because I see what's going on here. <laughs> There's a lot of, you know, migration, and um, we see the numbers of, uh, you know, um, I don't know how to put it, but yeah, I guess I noticed. I was in a very Latino uh, part of the city and, and that just helped shape me. So uh, I started learning it since then. I was, I was pretty good going into the Peace Corps and I, I'm, I'm pretty fluent. So uh, I'm a storyteller. So I'll say one time I was on a rotation and there was this gentleman who kind of hurt his hip. He was in the hospital for two days and I, it was my first time rounding on him. I went up to him and I saw he was on anxiety medications and like an antipsychotic so he could, I think Seroquel, so he could kind of sleep at night. And then I just went up and talked to him. How are you doing? Uh, what happened? And he, he was telling me, oh, I'm visiting from Mexico. I like came here and I had a fall. I hurt my hip. All my family's in Mexico. My brother's coming in a few days. And he was like, but I need to tell you, I haven't eaten in two days. Like, no one has asked me if I had food yet. And they're like, they're giving me these medications. And it was like, I don't know what's going on. And I remember talking to him just like, is that all you, like, I don't know, read his, asked about his past medical history. And long story short, you know, we changed his, his diet status. He was eating full meals and, uh, got to take him off the anxiety meds and the antipsychotics to sleep. He said, 
you know, I'm not anxious. Well, I am anxious. I just haven't really talked to anyone in two days and no one's really telling me what's going on. And that was probably the most memorable experience I've had. But a lot of times uh, there's just um, a language barrier and it, it really helps when I can go in and communicate with the patient and they tell me like, I wish we had more people who can talk with us because the care isn't the same unless we can speak the same language, so. It does really make me think like, even after I had this conversation with you the first time, um, which got me so interested in interviewing you, I have like fallen into, it's so easy to, you know, you see your own inconvenience and like, like for example, you're rounding, you know, you're pre-rounding by yourself at 6 a.m. and like you go in the room and the patient speaks Spanish and they they speak a little bit of English and you're like, oh, you know, that's gonna have to do because yeah, I have like five minutes and then we have to go, you know, meet the attending or whatever it might be. And you don't know how difficult it is to try to convey what you need to convey mm -hmm. with such a big language barrier. So you don't know what they're unable to say or what you're missing. Yeah. You know, there's all these guidelines, like you shouldn't have the family member translate or, you know, you should always get a translator, but, um, yeah. you know, in practice, it's so difficult. And sometimes we just go, you know, whatever, I'm just going to come in here and try to talk to them in English because I don't have time or whatever it might be. Yeah. And, you know, the harm we do is hard to measure from that. And so I think I agree with you. It's a shame that Spanish is a superpower. Like it shouldn't be that way. Um, and, you know, we should all learn, but then you have all these other languages folks speak. It's just such a challenging thing. Um, any other comments or you know, personal stories or anecdotes with your Spanish speaking skills? Um, not so much. I mean, you touched on it well. Like, we do preach a patient centered way of approaching uh, the people who come into the hospital needing our help. And it sadly it feels like a little disservice, you know, when we know that we're in there for five minutes, like, oh man, you know. Whether, whether it seems passed on, it's like, I, I don't have as much time to like, go get interpreting services and we're just working this up real quick. Um, I mean, that's why I chose family medicine because you get, we, we pride ourselves on connection and sitting down and talking with patients. And uh, sometimes I get nipped at because I take too long, <laughs> um, but I, I think that's okay. Uh, I'm working on that too, <laughs> but no, that's all I have to. Yeah, um, if yeah. you get snipped at for, you know, providing good care, I think it's worth it. Yeah, it made me think too what you said about like the patient hadn't eaten and no one had clarified their diet. Like, I think that happens to even people that we speak the same language. Like, I think we just, <laughs> yeah, yeah. We just forget <laughs> to change our patients off NPO or clears or whatever. I hear you. Starve That's a them good all the time. Yeah, that's a good point because I've seen it happen to English speaking patients as well. I suppose what made it memorable for me was I was finally able to be that link between 
their direct care because a lot of times as a med student you feel like you're just there shadowing or a burden or just kind of doing redundant work but I'm like you know what I'm I'm very valued in this situation because I I can like really affect this patient's care so whenever those and I know you've had times like that too so um feeling like you're legitimately part of their direct care so I was times like that I remember yeah yeah, those times are few and far between as a third-year medical student. <laughs> they'll, yeah. they'll get more and more, don't we? <laughs> yeah, and we do. We fail to communicate. You know, we fail to check in with our patients and take time and communicate them in our own language. So I can imagine, like, adding the language barrier. How many things do we miss and neglect with them, which is really sad to think about. Um, so, yeah, I really love this conversation. We could probably talk about this all day. Um, but I do want to kind of shift. We touched on this a little bit, but how do patients and then like staff, because those are different, how do they treat you as a Black student doctor? And what differences have you noticed with the behavior of like, say, white patients towards you versus maybe a patient with a minority background? I think a gentle way of how I approach this is, you know, half half my class is like females, right? So I just like talking with people and seeing kind of their life experience and, and how things are for them. So I've learned a lot of times, you know, women go into rooms and they will tell me they, they're treated like they might be nurses or if they walk in and there's a male next to them, like obviously the male is the doctor and they're not. And so Sometimes I ask my peers, do you feel like when you walk through the hospital, do, do you walk around knowing you're a woman and you're conscious of that when you go into the room and into social situations? And the general response has been like, yeah, I know I'm, I'm conscious that I'm a woman and I realize that when I go into rooms and I'm kind of cognizant of those interactions. And so I say that about my race. Um, you know, there are they're not the same as when as, as being a woman, but I think that's the easiest way for me to make an analogy of it. It's like, yes, when I go into the room, I realize I'm black and I know that there may be uh, certain ways that I'm approached that are because I'm black. And so I don't think I'll go into it too much, but uh I will say that I'm I, if if I go in a group, a lot of times I'm not the one seen as a doctor either. So um, it's it's something I keep in mind. When patients of color see me, they they go like they they get excited. <laughs> when when black <laughs> patients when black patients see me, some black patients will be like, "Oh, my brother!" Like. I'm, I'm, I feel heard, like you make me feel heard. They've said that to me. It's kind of that idea that people who look like you, you tend to treat better. You have like that bias of, of treating them better if they look like you. Um, I think there's research on them outside. This is really informal, but patients know that too. They're like, I see that you look like me and I, I know that you will pay more attention to me. And they'll have a kind of calm when I come in the room. So that's crazy to see. Um, yeah, I love how you put that. 
you know, trying to put it in frames of like how a white woman like me could understand. I, I think the first time that concept was introduced to me was year, years and years ago. I was reading, I think it was White Fragility. And the author kind of said, you know, white people to us, the kind of perception is that we don't have race and that's something that other people have and we don't have it. And so minorities have to deal with it and it's their thing. And that kind of like shook me deeply. It still shakes me. Um, So, you know, as I'm guilty as charged, you know, I have to reframe things and think about I have race and all that and like realize how little that I have to think about it when, you know, if you're a minority surrounded by the majority or white people or whatever it might be, it might have to be at the forefront of your mind all the time. And you might not have the privilege to forget about your race and how you're being perceived. Um, So it's like you said, you know, we might not think like, always be thinking, oh, I'm a woman, I'm a woman. But then when you're going into a a certain patient room or whatever it might be, suddenly you're not able to forget about it and how um, that might change the situation, how you might be perceived. I've definitely experienced that in surgery when, you know, all of the surgeons are male and, you know, different things like that and how I'm perceived in that kind of um, complex or that interaction. Um, So I really feel how difficult it must be to always have to be thinking about that. Um, Well, I appreciate your your input. I read that book too. And I don't think I've said, I I, uh, shy away from just saying white, you know, like, um, and just talk about my personal experiences. what I took from that book was there was a, a term called like racial fatigue. And it's kind of the concept that, you, you know, you say, oh, it, it is your problem. So when, when you bring your problem up to me, there's, almost, there's only so much space I have for me to kind of deal with it. After like a minute or two, it's like, all right, I'm tired. Like, I don't have time for this. Whereas it's kind of my everyday life. Right. Um, and so that's another way I learned. Another thing I took from the book is it's good because this is a book I read too. And I'm Yay. using some of the concepts today because uh, a, a lot of people don't acknowledge race as a concept. So I've just framed it as like, oh, maybe I could bring it up as an analogy of women and like feminism. And we, we all acknowledge that. Uh, why is it so weird to, to maybe think that I... I'm conscious of my identity as far as race goes, Um, but yeah, Yeah, absolutely. I appreciate that you've read it because now I'm like remembering points that she talked about. (laughs) Like, yeah, it's like our reaction is like, oh, why are you always bringing up race? And like, I'm tired of hearing about it. you know y'all are over here like this is my day-to-day and I can't ever forget about it and it's always in my face you know the microaggressions and it changes everything and we just have like a 
a two minute tolerance for it. Like, <laughs> it's really, um, you know, sad to think about. And it takes work every day for just to be cognizant of that in my mind, because just growing up in a monoculture where everyone looked at me, it was looked like me as, you know, it is a privilege that I need to like actively work against so that I'm, you know, thinking about it. And so I really appreciate that perspective. Yeah. Um, it means a lot that you, you know, you are open-minded to, to that. And I'll say that I've received, this is a little off, a little tangent, but on some of my interviews, they've, they've uh, highlighted my personal statement, uh, sorry, my uh, letters of recommendation. And I wasn't able to read them, but they, they spoke very highly of them. And I remember the letters of recommendation were the only physicians, um, I think two of them were of color and one was a Spanish speaker. And we made connections because we talked about minorities in health and social determinants and things like that and um, it was just a really powerful experience like sitting with with these doctors and connecting with them because it's kind of a part of kind of a shadow self of ourselves we have to hide in the general population and so they wrote me really great letters think they, they i'm gonna go email them and tell them thank you because uh, um anyways yeah, it's like it's like going through war together or something. It's just this yeah. perspective that other people, you know, the majority of people might not understand what you've gone through and something that you can deeply connect on. And I'm glad you got such good letters because you deserve it. <laughs> Thanks, Katya. <laughs> I got you. So like on that vein, because you were talking about your preceptors and how you connected to them How, what advice do you have for preceptors and residents specifically i'm kind of thinking about white you know majority preceptors and residents uh, what advice do you have with those folks kind of charged with teaching students of color and being like in a kind of position of power with students of color you know i looked at that question and looked at it and Part of me is like I wouldn't I wouldn't know what to say. Uh, I would think if if they are a person who is willing and open to being okay learning about someone other someone else's experiences, and um, I mean most of the time I go into work and I do my work, and you know we are courteous and we are polite and cordial and. Uh, then we go home. I mean, that's that's work in general. So it's tough to have an expectation of someone to maybe approach me and be like, you know, what can I learn from you? And what how's your life experience affected you? That would be a dream for me, but it I wouldn't know where to start. Like I think it's always been productive when my attendings and and I have had conversations that have led to that. But um I wouldn't know how to to give advice on that uh, yeah on that front to be honest I see what you're saying because you can't really know if you're safe to 
you know, have these conversations or totally be yourself when you don't know the background of the preceptor or maybe their yeah. values and beliefs. So for someone to open up and say, hey, I realize that you have, you know, this coming in and this might be your experience or background and I'm open to talking about that might make you feel more safe um, to kind of talk about that or be yourself is that kind of you are an amazing interviewer and I couldn't have said the words better uh yeah because I'm not here to push agendas down people's throats or anything like that when I come to work they may be from a different cultural belief a different country a different religion and um I think if if two people are open and mature enough to have those conversations it only benefits the team uh, so I'm, I mean, going forward, I'm always willing and open. And I think I've sought how, how I've incorporated in, that into my life is I've sought residency programs that, you know, preach diversity and, and they have ownership over that. Uh, uh, that's how I've personally approached it. You know, I seek those environments where I feel more accepted. And I know that's not the answer to everything, but, uh, yeah, I love that. Absolutely. And um, kind of going along that line, do you have any advice for your fellow students to improve their ability to care for like marginalized patients? Maybe for someone like me, who's just like white, you know, and I have to go in the Spanish speaking room or whatever it might be. Um, is there any way that I could do that better and be more mindful? Um, again, I mean, uh, this isn't something I went to school learning about how to, how to teach anything. The, something that's always helped me is just, uh, I remember I met a patient who was from the Navajo nation. They were native American and I went in there super naive to their culture. And I just said, I am very naive to the Navajo culture. Will you? tell me so-and-so, will you, will you tell me this, how you feel and why you might not want this treatment and what that means for your culture. And I've always gotten positive responses. Like if someone asks you about your interest or your beliefs, what I've learned is most of the times people don't mind sharing if, if you come from a place of respect and, uh, you know, like a polite ignorance, like I am ignorant, I don't know. Um, I think that that's what I learned was uh, maybe one of my assets going through med school is I love the conversation. I love learning about people and uh, learning how they think and why they think and coming together as a team to give them the best care that they may want for themselves. Um, and just being mindful in the room. I think that that is the least to ask of any physician. You know, that's, yeah. that's part of our... Uh, our spirit and our, our job as a physician when we go in the room at, at least that's my opinion <laughs> yeah I think there's a lot of wisdom in that I feel like the lesson is like you know not to be colorblind and maybe to treat people not equally but with equity like I'm going to acknowledge that you probably have a different experience that I know nothing about you know I yeah. wasn't born in Vietnam or Poland or whatever it might be. And 
I am open that your experience is totally different and let's talk about it and you can you know inform me about how I can take better care of you um yeah uh I go in the room and I I imagine myself as an agent of the medical system uh that I've been given the privilege to ask those questions to patients like as much as I've been given the privilege to say you know like what's your diet like at home so we could look at your you know we're looking at your a1c and we want to work on a plan for your sugars I mean we learned that as you know DO students um mind body and spirit uh it's interconnected <laughs> so as much as I asked about the body I go in there like how are you how are you feeling how's your spirit like um and when I bring though when I when I bring mind body and spirit into my patient encounters I I get different patient encounters when I versus when I just go in there talking about body. Do, does that make sense? Like yeah. even a, a DO trained physician told me that and I, I'll take it with me. He was just like, you know, when we go in there, we're, we're treating mind, body, and spirit. So um, what I've what I've learned is I like, sorry, another tangent. So when when patients and I'm I'm speaking knowing that you're cutting things out, right? <laughs> <laughs> no, but, everything you say is gold, like I said. Oh my so gosh. It. <laughs> <laughs> um I like going into to rooms and I'll listen for keywords like hope. I hope things will get better. Or um uh um I believe or you know, energy or something like when I hear words like that from a patient, it cues me into maybe they have a certain spirituality about them. Uh, they they think in something more than themselves, or like there's a there's a bigger thing than just the body. And I like cue in on that, and I'm like, all right, how am I going to incorporate some of their spirit in, into this patient encounter? Like, I'm wishing well, I'm wishing you well, or I'm sending you energy, or like, it it sounds like you're spiritual. Like, tell me more, or like, how how are you feeling spiritual? And I do that. I mean. Um, I don't know if that sounds too esoteric, but <laughs> we're treating mind, body, and spirit. So I, I uh, hold equal weight. I try to hold equal weight to all those those three aspects. You know, I think AT still would definitely commend you. You're <laughs> oh, like boy. channeling him. Um, but yes, every person has, you know, they have so much to bring to the table. And the more of that you acknowledge and understand the better you're going to treat them and the more you're going to have that rapport and have them open up to you which can only be a good thing I feel like so I'm really happy for your patients and how lucky they are and have been and all the future people that will be dedicated to you which I'm sure there will be more than you have time for <laughs> <laughs> well thanks Katya I mean like I said I started off this is I feel this is a very privileged position to be in. And I'll, I'll, I'm learning from my patients just as much as they're hopefully benefiting from the experience as well. So uh, I'm excited to get into residency and get this journey started, you know, so. <laughs> yes, I'm excited for you. And I probably will text you like the second the match is like, uh, you know, the results yeah. are out because I want to know where you're going but it's so exciting your future is upon you <laughs> this is 
hopefully this is a long successful career for both of us. I know we'll keep in touch. So uh, uh, it was a pleasure having met you in uh, Florida when we were both rotating through there. <laughs> I know it was a definitely a lucky like month for me too. And I'm so glad that we were able to have this conversation again. I feel like it's even better and more fleshed out. And I always learn so much from you every time I talk to you. Um, so thank you for coming and talking to me again. Yeah, of course. It's, it's been a pleasure. I'm glad this worked out. So that's all we have time for today. And a huge thank you to student Dr. Sean Poole for joining us on this month's podcast. And thank you to our listeners. I hope you'll join us for another episode next month of the do.fm ACUFP podcast. The ACUFP student podcast is a production of the American College of Osteopathic Family Physicians. To learn more about ACUFP, please visit www.acofp.org.